0: This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with
1: God Come with me. If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Thank you so much for joining us again. I got a lot to get to here on today's show. And I'm going to start out by telling you a little bit about what Amazon just did. You might have heard that these Republican senators, Marco Rubio, Mike Lee, Mike Braun, and some others, went to Amazon because Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, which challenges the transgender movement, was purged from Amazon. And they wanted to get some answers on this. Well, Amazon has now said, in a response to these senators that it has pulled the book that challenges the transgender movement because it does not allow books that frame LGBTQ plus identity as a mental illness. You're gonna have some problems with the American Psychiatric Association, the DSM. I'm not really sure because when you look at the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as Anderson pointed out, gender dysphoria is listed there. And they and Amazon sells the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So the real deciding factor, he said, seems to be whether you endorse hormones and surgery as the proper treatment or counseling. Everyone agrees that gender dysphoria is a serious condition that causes great suffering. There is a debate, however, which Amazon is seeking to shut down about how best to treat patients who experience gender dysphoria. No, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Big Gay is having more power. That's all it is. The, and you know this from listening to my show because we have talked before about the fact that one gay activist, one gay activist who was on a tear about a year or so ago, was able to get Joseph Nicolosi's book uh, on homosexuality purged from Amazon, was able to get Joe Dallas purged from Amazon. He's an ex homosexual now, a Christian, does great amounts of counseling and, and just a wonderful man of God whom we've had on the show a number of times and Polk from restored hope network an ex-lesbian. I mean, all these books have been purged. Where have you people been? And now all of a sudden it's a story because Ryan Anderson was purged. Do you, do people not see what's going on here? All these liberals, all these years who yelled about conservative censorship of books, what do they have to say for themselves now? Well, what they have to say for themselves now is you're a hater. Now, this this kind of is a lead-in to a story that really makes me mad. I'm going to try to be calm. It might be difficult, but I'm going to do my level best. Tim Keller, the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, is really making me mad this time. He, he said some things in the past that have really made me mad, not like the time he and his wife were at the Living Out Conference back in 2018 before Revoice was announced, and and Sam Alberry, who's one of the founders of Living Out, this UK ministry for same-sex attracted Christians, and, and they were the ones who endorsed Revoice, which kind of tipped us off to starting our coverage of it in 2018. They were there at the Living Out Conference Oh, yes, we love this. Yes, Sam Alberry. Oh, our editor at the Gospel Coalition. Oh, yes. And then he put out the LGBT church audit. Do you remember we covered that quite extensively for a long time and, and wanting to go to churches and wanting to put out there that churches should have to do this and that. And the other thing for homosexuals who are in their churches, including having their church members share meals and share their children with people from different backgrounds. They're not talking about racial backgrounds, folks. They were talking about homosexuals. And it may we made such a fuss about it that they ended up pulling that particular thing off the audit. But this is the background here, and Kathy Keller uh, endorsed this. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but I want to get to this latest news because this is from the Christian Post. Tim Keller said the American church's championing of the Republican Party over the last several decades has given Christian nationalism a place where it could incubate. And while he says he agrees with the Christian right on abortion and same sex marriage, he's limiting it to that. He basically blames conservative Christians years ago for what's going on in our society. Now you gotta hear this for yourself. He's doing an interview here with a podcast. This is just incredible. Here is Tim Keller. Cut one.
1: I would say for the last twenty years, the Christian right, though I usually would agree with their positions, I'm pro-life. You know, in other words, I I you know, that did not I still don't think that same sex marriage is a good idea for, for the country or people. Um so so I would technically be in, you know, green with them. But you know how they raise their money for for 20 years. They sent out letters talking about how you've got to send us money because the the, the, the gay people are going to try to come and take your children away and because they're evil and because uh, and because, uh, you know, the Democrats and the left are going to destroy your religious liberty. They just they just said awful things and vilified people. It's one of the reasons why so many gay activists now just don't want to forgive evangelicals because when they were had a little more power in the eighties and nineties, that's how they raised their money. That's how they got people out. And weirdly enough, that's not the Christian way at all. The Christian way at all is, is, you know, the way up is down. The way to rule is to serve. This is how Jesus did it. The way to, uh, to, to get happy is to not think about your own happiness, but the happiness of others, you know, the way, the way to get any influence is to empty yourself and be a servant. That's Jesus way. And, um, they're not doing that. They're actually using the Nietzschean way. And um, I think what that did was by by for a long time, just keeping evangelicals frothing at the mouth about how everything is going to so bad and making everybody so angry.
0: Unbelievable. This guy's absolutely unbelievable. He doesn't name anybody, by the way, on this church leaders podcast who raised money this way, allegedly saying gay people are going to take your children. Who said that? Who said that? Because I've been on the scene for decades and I never remember anybody raising money saying that, saying that the the, the homosexual activists are evil. Uh, Do we really have to make that claim again? Have you not been paying attention the last 10 years? You think that having boys and girls bathrooms is wonderful? You think having LGBT propaganda shoved down kids throats and drag queen story hours, you think that's not evil? Fine, you don't have to think it's evil, but this is all the fault of the Christian right for having fundraised this way 20 years ago. But yet you don't name one person who ever did that or one ministry who ever did that. And by the way, on the claim that the Democrats will destroy your religious liberty. Huh. What an interesting thing to have said, because they were just dead wrong about that. Right. Except for that Amazon situation, except for what's going on with the Equality Act. And I haven't seen the Gospel Coalition really going on a big tear against all these activists for the last 10 years. They're too busy kicking conservative Christians. Now listen to what Tim Keller says next. Cut to.
1: By the way, things are getting bad for evangelicals. It's very possible. I, I am not in denial about the fact that 10 years from now, if you have evangelical convictions about sex and gender, you may not be able to work for a major university or for the government. Or for big corporation and uh, it's not that it's not that christians haven't faced that other places in the past we shouldn't be crybabies nevertheless having said all that yeah it, we, we nurtured this and christian nationalists use that and therefore um we brought it on ourselves even though i agree with perry and whitehead that in many ways the christian nationalists are are kind of using us not so much we we Evangelicals are not all Christian nationalists, but they are using us. They're recruiting very well because we made we made a lot of our people recruitable.
0: Who is he talking about? What Christian nationalists? He doesn't even define the term. They just throw it around the way all good leftists do to try to impugn who usually just normal people who love their country and happen to be Christians and would love to see a return to the Lord in this country. But I guess that's just too out there. That's just too wacky. And by the way, Christians, if you're losing your religious freedom and pretty soon you're not going to be able to be hired in places like universities, we shouldn't be crybabies about it. You know, other people suffer like this around the world, so we should just not be crybabies about it. We're not crybabies about it. Tim Keller, we're alarmed and we're terrified. And the reason we're alarmed and terrified is because this is the United States of America. And if the United States of America loses its religious liberty, where are you going to go to get any religious liberty? As we have said many times is what has enabled the greatest modern missionary force to explode across the globe from the United States. But now we have church leaders like Tim Keller and his cohort, D.A. Carson, who endorses single gay Christian that horrible book from a few years back that we talked about. These people are leading the way These people are not leading the way, and I would argue they're the problem. The liberals in the church are the problem because they haven't lifted a finger to fight this when it could have made a difference. And, in fact, now they're saying, oh, well, you know, don't be crybabies just because you lose your religious freedom. And, by the way, it was your fault in the first place. No, it wasn't. And I'm going to get more into it when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe.
1: The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Zonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible.
0: If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um,
2: about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor.
1: But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can. You know, where God gives us opportunity
2: to go there and just take the word of God.
0: Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, BibleLeak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa.
1: We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles.
0: You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 S W O R D, word or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet.
0: Just remember, if you're a conservative Christian and you're losing your religious liberty and you're accepting the fact that in the days ahead, you may not be able to get a job, you may be on the margins, that Tim Keller blames you. It's your fault. And if you're part of a ministry that did any fundraising warning people about the future loss of religious liberty or the power of Big Gay, it's also your fault. You know whose fault it isn't? The Gospel Coalition's. The Gospel Coalition's or the Keller families. And by the way, let me just remind you, uh, if you've just tuned in that the callers were the ones who attended the Living Out conference founded this is the, this ministry founded by Gospel Coalition editor Sam Alberry, the gay Anglican priest And they were at this Identity in Christ conference back in June of 2018. Tim and Kathy Keller were there. They launched the Living Out Church Audit, as my friend Al Baker describes it, a tool to help church leadership teams answer this key question. How biblically inclusive is your church? They say that unsurprisingly, their focus is on those who might identify as LGBTQ plus same-sex attracted. And they say that Jesus included all in a countercultural way. And they're hoping this audit will help churches follow him. His lead. This is what the Kellers were endorsing. Number nine on this audit saying church family members instinctively share meals, homes, holidays, festivals, money, and children with others from different backgrounds and life situations to them. Well, when we made a big fuss about this, really living out? You want church members to share their children with homosexuals in the church. You think that's a great idea, do you? You know what Kathy Keller had to say at that conference about that audit? Why let me remind you. Cut three. I wish I had seen this before I designed my talk. This is brilliant.
1: I'm going to take it back to Redeemer and make copies and give them to all the church leaders. I would recommend that you do the same for whoever your pastors and church leaders are.
0: Really, really thoughtful and and well. I'm mean, Nobody asked me to say this, by the way. I, this is all because I really do think it's brilliant. Okay. And the guy who was responsible for this church audit is an editor at the Gospel Coalition. And... Anglican gay priest named Sam Albury, who we've talked about quite a bit on this program and all kinds of problems with the gospel coalition pertaining to the issue of homosexuality. These people have helped soften up the church to accept this garbage so they can move on to the next step. And where was their big, huge pushback against revoice? Well, they helped usher it in. They helped usher it in. This is a, a ministry living out that endorsed revoice for heaven's sake. That's how I found out about it. So, Tim Keller is just absolutely incredible. His gall is incredible. You know, he has such a position of power, both as a well-known pastor and best-selling author and co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. He's got all this power. And what did he do with it? He advocates for leftism. That's what he does while trying to tip his hat to, oh, I'm pro-life. Oh, yes, I'm pro-life. Oh, I don't think that same-sex marriage is the best thing for flourishing. And if you go back to his remarks at that one event that we have played on this show before, where he was asked about homosexuality being a sin, well, Abba, Abba, Hobbitah, hobbitah. this is the guy who's going to blame the christian right sure for the loss of religious freedom he's going to blame the christian right for people getting canceled right it's our fault no it's not our fault by the way Let me wind this into the discussion just to do a further commentary on this issue. This story was brought to my attention. It actually was out a couple of weeks ago on LifeSite News, and I'm glad to see this. The headline is Christian pastor in Germany fined for inciting hatred against homosexuals. The pastor had merely reiterated biblical teaching on homosexuality in a private seminar. Listen to this in a stunning sentence. And this occurred late last year. A court in Bremen, Germany, sentenced Reverend Olaf Lotzel of St. Martini, part of the Evangelical Church in Germany, to a big fine for inciting hatred against homosexuals in private remarks made to church couples. During the seminar, Lotzel defended the biblical definitions of gender and sexuality, condemning the Berlin Pride March and referring to gender ideology as an attack against God's order of creation. Lotzel's defense lawyer called this sentence, which the pastor is appealing, a catastrophe, and warned that free speech was under threat. He said, while today this is about a view found in the Bible, tomorrow it will be about any other opinion. Lotzell's lawyer told the court that the Bremen pastor was condemning behavior rather than people, but the judge stated that the homosexual orientation of a person is part of his personality. Tell that to all the people I know whom Jesus Christ has rescued out of a life of homosexuality. Tell that to Stephen Black. Tell that to Greg Quinlan. Tell that to any number of people who've been set free from homosexuality through the power of Jesus Christ. The story goes on to say, Some Protestant leaders in Bremen appear to be more concerned by how biblical teachings reflect on their popularity rather than by threats to their ability to proclaim the gospel, announcing in response to the sentence that they condemned in the strongest terms, Lotzell's words. Oh, terrific. With Protestant like that, who needs anybody else? That uh, this denomination is actually a largely liberal denomination that he's in, and Lotzell's traditional views have made him a controversial figure for some time. St. Martini Church, where Lotzell serves as pastor, has even had services interrupted by LGBT activists. Is that the fault of the Christian right in America, Tim Keller? Just wondering, to discuss the implications of this ongoing case, they interviewed Manfred Muller with Voice of the Martyrs, and they asked about the significance of the case. And he said, there's no precedent for it. There's no precedent for it. This will serve as a precedent for future cases. That makes it so significant. We've seen this coming for a long time. Even a few years ago, some conservative Christian might have already said, if I were to imagine persecution coming to Germany, I might imagine it along the lines of moral, especially sexual Ethics. Now, with Olaf Lotzl, for the first time, a German court restricts religious freedom for the benefit of the homosexual lobby, or to put it in more neutral terms to protect the feelings and rights of homosexuals. At the expense of freedom of speech, religious freedom, etc., homosexual rights are protected. This will have consequences for churches in Germany that reject gay blessings and weddings. This could, for example, in the future cause them to lose their status as charitable organizations. That would be a huge financial disaster. Disadvantage, And then when he's asked about the potential outcome for other conservative clergy members, he said already intimidation to take a biblical stand on this issue. In addition, new realities will be created in the regional church, meaning that in the future, pastors with a critical attitude toward blessing homosexual couples or even conducting weddings will not be admitted to the church as clergy. Before being employed, an interview could be held asking them about their stance on those issues. Thus, facts are created and pastors with a biblical view of homosexuality will then no longer exist. Is that the fault of the Christian right in the United States, Tim Keller? Is there something you might have been able to do in your position as a big evangelical face to have thwarted some of the threats that we're now facing as Americans here? Where were you, Tim Keller, when you had the opportunity to be out in front of the Supreme Court standing for marriage between one man and one woman back in 2013 when the Supreme Court was holding the DOMA and the Prop 8 cases? Where were you? Where were you? I was there. There were other Christians there. Where were you? I didn't see anybody from the Gospel Coalition. You guys were AWOL. So don't turn around and tell Christians that this is their fault. Because Germany and what's happening in Germany to this dear brother in Christ is not the fault of anybody except the devil himself and the people who are just obeying the father of lies. That's all that's happening. This is a spiritual situation, a la Ephesians chapter six, and it's affecting real Christians around the world. And you know what? This seminar that this pastor gave wasn't even public. I, I guess he even began This event by saying this is not to be published. And in the talk, the pastor always spoke of homosexuality, not of homosexuals, differentiating between sin and the sinner. This differentiation has not been taken into account, his lawyer said, by the court, which would have been absolutely necessary for the verdict. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the writing is on the wall, folks. The writing is on the wall. And this is why I've always said... Be faithful to Jesus Christ. Be faithful no matter what this culture does, no matter what the sellouts in the church do. Stay the course. Follow the word of God. Obey the word of God. Be a submissive Christian to your Lord and Savior, not to these worldly churchmen who would have us become cowards at the very hour when we need to be bold and strong and fully, fully committed to our Lord. It's just amazing. Oh, and by the way, over in the UK, this is from the Christian Post, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has described therapy for unwanted same-sex attraction as repulsive. He doesn't mince words and vowed to end so-called conversion therapy days after parliament members likened prayer and fasting to such past practices as electroshock therapy and corrective rape. This is what's going on in the UK. Is this also the fault of the Christian right in the United States, Tim Keller? What's going on in England? This is their fault because they did some kind of bizarre fundraising techniques where they said you're going to lose your religious freedom and, um, you know, homosexuals are going to take your kids away. Is that why Boris Johnson is now making these kinds of remarks? Johnson apologized last Friday amid complaints from activists that his government has delayed taking action on the issue of gay conversion therapy after he declared in July 2020 that the practice was absolutely abhorrent and vowed to ban such therapies. According to The Telegraph, three of his advisors who identify as LGBT quit over a lack of progress. Proponents of such a ban say the practice is cruel, ineffective and contributes to suicide among LGBT identifying people okay All right. Well, you know, we've already fought this battle here in the United States, state by state. I haven't seen the Gospel Coalition showing up to help people like David Pickup go before some of these state legislatures and say, actually, there is no such thing as conversion therapy. And actually, all of this hype about electroshock therapy, uh, you had some outliers 60, 70 years ago doing these kinds of crazy things. And no one's doing that anymore. The only thing that's taking place, generally speaking, you might have some private psychiatrists, Helping therapy patients meet their goal of wanting to reduce or live out their beliefs as Christians because they're really struggling with it after perhaps being sexually abused. But then you also have biblical counselors. That's who they're, that, that, What they're trying to do is reverse morality, guys. That's what's going on here. So you have a lot of these activists going around here in the U.S. and they're just flat out lying about what's going on. They're just lying. And they have very few people pushing back. Where's the gospel coalition? Why aren't they doing anything to fight all of this? Because he's a servant, I guess. And, and, and people like David Pickup and people like some of these other great Christians who have fought against this real evil, they're the problem. Nope, they're not the problem. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Have you ever noticed the contrast between the way Jesus' disciples sometimes talked and behaved in the Gospels versus the way they did in the book of Acts? You think of Peter, for example. He was the one who denied the Lord three times, and yet he was a bold apostle in the book of Acts who was absolutely fearless for Jesus. And if those Christians who were sinners just like us could turn the world upside down for their Savior, why aren't we making a similar impact for the Lord on our world Great question. And we're going to talk about it today with Charles Martin, bestselling author of 14 novels and also the author of the book we'll be discussing. They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. Charles, great to have you with us. Welcome.
2: Hey, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: Sure. You've got this basic question you're asking in your book. If the apostles did this, they turned the world upside down. Why is it that we can't? I mean, why do you think this is a key question for us?
2: Boy, if I had the answer to that, um, that may be bigger. Than, <laughs> that may be bigger than one book. I, I, I don't know. But the thing that led me to it was just this sort of surreal thought I had one day. I don't know. Maybe I, I was in leading about reading about Jesus' ascension, and I thought to myself, "Okay, he's gone. There are all these people standing on the top of the mountain, Mount of Olives, and I've been there. It's not a big place. You can see all of Jerusalem, and now they got to walk down. They got to go back to their lives, and he's given them his a." Uh, Authority and his commands but he's not empowered them yet to do what he said to do so I think they all of them walk down this mountain thinking to themselves what on earth do we do now hmm. yeah and I think that's about the time his word became really important to them and then about seven days later the roof starts to shake so I don't know it was just a surreal thought for me Like, these people were just broken sinners like us, and yet they really did. By the time we get to Acts 17 with Paul and Silas walking into Thessalonica, and they're described as these who are those who have turned the world upside down. Mm -hmm. Rome is afraid of the power that they wield, and the power is the resurrected Jesus. So. Somewhere in there is the answer to your question.
0: No, you're right about that, because I I think that's in some ways a perennial question for Christians today. I, I mean, we look around at a world that desperately needs Jesus and desperately needs the transformation that only he can bring. What is it that differentiates us, would you say, from the apostles when it comes to just zeal for the Lord? Because that, you know, Peter is a perfect figure to talk about because Peter was zealous in the Gospels, but he got a lot of things wrong and he made a lot of missteps. But his zeal really turned into an incredible, um, you know, situation for organizing the early church and getting people saved. What about this whole issue of zeal? How do you see this?
2: Well, the first thing, I, first thing, I feel like the Lord had to deal with in Peter was shame. I mean, he denied his best friend, and right. and when he even when he promised that he wouldn't, and this is after he stood on the mountaintop and in front of everybody affirmed him, affirmed him, and said, "You're the Christ." So I think the first thing the Lord does with Peter is he's got to get his head straight. He's got to heal his heart and get his head straight. He's got to sort of bring him back into the lineup, so to speak. And I talk about this in the book, but shame is the thing that the enemy is using against Peter. <laughs> Peter has returned to his former former life, he's back out in a boat fishing again with all his buddies because they're following him. He doesn't know what to do, he's no longer following Jesus as evidenced by the fact that he's back in the boat. And there's Jesus on the beach, he said, hey guys, come on in, let me cook you some breakfast. And the Lord immediately builds a charcoal fire, which is trouble for Peter because that immediately signals for Peter his denial, which is if, if you go back and read the event, when he last denied Jesus, He's standing around a charcoal fire with a slave girl. So it's a beautiful thing, I think, that the Lord does with Peter. is he takes him back to that last moment, and he gives him a do-over. I mean, it's the greatest do-over in the history of do-overs. When he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, of course, you know I love you. And then then the Lord tells him in just beautiful terms, and feed my sheep. Which means Peter has now been invited to be a shepherd, which he knows a lot about, because he's been a lost sheep. So... I don't know. I think the I think the beautiful thing that the Lord does with Peter, and I think He wants to do with all of us, is rid us of our shame. Because if I was our enemy, it is the thing I would use against us. Because we're all wretched, black-hearted sinners to begin with. It's the thing I would use against us to take us out of His calling and what he's asked us to do in following him.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because when you talk about the Lord dealing with Peter's shame, I think one of the first ways he did that was the announcement of the resurrection from the angel. And and the witnesses are told, go tell the apostles and the disciples, and peter and
1: peter and, right yeah.
0: peter is named it wasn't john it wasn't james it was right, peter right. so that was the lord again reaching out to peter and i would think it you know goes back to to what we read in the gospels about you know he who who is forgiven much loves much and yes. that was peter i mean the the experience of being forgiven by the lord for denying him three times I think that that probably played an awful big, really a huge part in what he was able to do in the book of Acts.
2: Well, I love what we see then in Peter is we see him actually do what the Lord asks him to do. And we get to Acts 2, which is just a couple chapters later. And and Peter finally finds his voice and becomes the Peter we all love him to be. stands up on the southern steps of the temple, which are there today. And he gives what's possibly the second greatest sermon ever spoken, second only to the one given on the Mount. Yeah. And several thousand are added to the number. So I think in that beautiful, you know, redemptive moment, the Lord allows Peter a chance to be who he's called him to be. And I, and I love that. And then from there, we see Peter become this, you know... <laughs> this rock upon which we build the church.
0: (laughs) Such a warrior. You know, going back to what you said earlier about the fact that, you know, you're trying to picture the disciples after the ascension of Jesus and they're on the mountain, what might it have been like for them to come down that mountain and say, well, what do we do now? Well, obviously when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, they were empowered in a fresh way that we all are, you know, we're empowered the same way. We have the same Holy Spirit that they did. But looking back on that moment of the day of Pentecost, How do you think that was such a crucial part of the reason that they could go out and change the world?
2: Well, let's back up a minute and let's look at John the Baptist's statement about who Jesus is. He says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then he says, he's the one who will baptize you with fire and the Spirit. And so we know from what we've known from the prophets and beforehand that this is what the Lord is going to do. They just don't know what it looks like. Joel said, in the last days, I'll pour, pour out my spirit on all flesh. So they've they've known. They just didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. I would have loved to have been there, would have loved to have been a flower on the wall. Do I think he still does it today? Absolutely. Do I think this the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in our chest for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Do I think more often than not, we stick him in the corner and tell him to, sh- until we give him permission to do something else. And I think, yes, we do. One of my prayers for me as I walk with the Lord is Lord, please, please. I don't want everyone ever want to muzzle you. I don't want to ever like, I'm afraid that you're going to do something I can't control. Please don't let me, please don't let me do that. Please show me how to walk in the power of your resurrection and love people the way that you loved them. But Lord, please stop me ever short of becoming Simon, who we see in Acts 8, (laughs) who wanted wanted the Spirit only for the power that it brought. And not the relationship with the one that, that it brought him into. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's right. And I think that ought to be the prayer of every single Christian. And and yet, I mean, I'm wondering too, what role was played in the fact that here were the disciples, the apostles, who were operating in uncharted territory, but they had the power of the Holy Spirit and the command of Jesus to go out into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. Now we're living in a time where Christianity is everywhere. We have churches all over the place, and it's all. Almost often, I I think, a matter of complacency for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, Christianity. Oh, yeah, all the contradictions in the Bible. How much of that, that complacency of familiarity, impacts us, do you think?
2: Well, I wonder sometimes if what we see with Christianity is really folks who are passionately in love with Jesus and following what he... And commanded us to do. I think there's a difference between what we see in our culture and often described. And, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a culture critic. I'm not. I don't have the monopoly on what it looks like to follow Jesus. But I have a sense in my spirit that often what I see or what I see it called is not necessarily who He was and what He commanded us to follow Him in doing. So right, right. I don't know. I get in trouble when I when I try and. Turn into a
1: culture critic.
0: (laughs) I understand. Hang on just a moment, Charles. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back with Charles Martin, his book. They turn the world upside down. Stay with us on Janet Mefford today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per Per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. The Ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives and souls by meeting moms where they are and introducing them to their preborn babies through ultrasound.
2: As soon as I saw that heartbeat, it was over. I cried the hottest tears I've ever cried, and I felt a fire in my belly and in my soul, and God
0: touched me that day. He pierced my heart for my child, and I felt love. Preborn stands in the gap for abortion-minded women across America by providing free ultrasounds and the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. When a mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she'll choose life eight out of 10 times. For your gift of $140 today, you can help rescue five preborn babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax-deductible. There's a preborn banner to click at janetmefford.com or call now 855-402-2229
1: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: I don't think there's a Christian alive who can read the account of the early church and the establishment of the early church in the book of Acts and not feel excited about Jesus again. And also maybe asking the question that my guest is asking, why aren't we more like that? Charles Martin is with us. His book is They Turn the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dare to Follow Jesus. You were saying, I know, Charles, before we went to the break, you're saying, I'm not a culture critic. You know, when we compare Christianity in our own day, 2000 plus years after those events in the book of Acts it's very difficult to answer that question as to why we're not turning the world upside down in similar ways to the apostles. But what about this question of faith and obedience? Because you talk on the one hand about, you know, having to go forward with faith before faith is faith. You said, and before faith is faithfulness, it is obedience. Now, obviously we're not saved by what we do. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but, what do you mean by that, the, the, the role between faith and obedience? The Bible has a lot to say about that, but what do you think?
2: One of the things I feel like the Lord has done with me and the guys that I do life with in my Bible study, and as we've looked back into Acts, what he did with, the, with his followers in Acts, is the, the, from the moment he's resurrected, he's got to wrestle with their unbelief. I mean, he's standing in the room with them, and they're sticking their fingers into the side of his chest, and, and, and it says they could not believe for hope and then throughout the, the the next days that he's with them he wrestles with their unbelief which he which becomes belief and then I, as I show in the, I try to show in the book the Lord then takes them through because of what they believe into singular acts of faith where they acted on that belief and then in, in acting on that belief single acts of faith faith became a lifestyle of faithfulness so really in order to answer the question i got to back up to belief in versus belief that and it was a it was a key distinction for me there are a lot of people who believe that jesus is lord Mm -hmm. less so i think that believe in him as jesus is lord let me give you one example The difference between believing in and believing that is like you and I standing on the side of a chasm, maybe the Grand Canyon, let's say there's a huge bridge across and there's a 5,000 foot drop below the bridge and people are bungee jumping off the bridge, okay? They walk out on the bridge, they strap that little thing around their ankle and then they take a swan dive off the bridge and, you know, it snaps them back and stretches their spine and all that sort of stuff. Well, you and I can stand on the chasm side, point at the bridge and the little apparatus around their ankles and say, I believe that will hold them mm-hmm. It's a very different thing for us to walk out on the bridge, buckle that thing around our ankles and take a Peter pan off the bridge. The second is believing in the thing wrapped around our ankles and those 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 believers those those early believers in the book of Acts believed in Jesus as Lord and they put all of their hopes and all of their faith and all of their trust and everything in him. They didn't stand aside and say I believe that they lived. In Jesus,
0: right. So, when you're looking at Christians in the modern context, how do we improve our obedience in the Lord and trust in Him, rather trusting that He will do something and being a little bit disconnected from Him at a distance? How do you remedy that? What do you do in order to be a more <laughs> trusting Christian, Charles? Please tell us. We need some help here.
2: Uh, uh, I'm with you. Look, I've rest. I don't. Again, I don't have a monopoly on it. But, but but when I look at His Word, I mean, this is part of. This is like initially what drove me to write write, write, what if it's true, and now they turn the world upside down. I'm looking at his word. I'm looking at the commands of Jesus. Take, for instance, Matthew 10. I'm just trying to look at his word from the standpoint of, do I really believe this? And if I really believed it, I would really do it. And I would really pray differently for people. And my life, it would shake things loose from me. And my life would look different if I really believed what my king said.
0: Well, that's true. It would look a lot different if we obey Jesus at every turn. And and you know, here's the thing, though. When you talk about the problem of spiritual warfare, we're always having to do battle with the enemy, and doubting what the Lord says in His Word, and doubting that we can be forgiven, and being tempted to sin. And then when we do give into the temptation, then the accuser of the brethren says, "You're rotten. The Lord will never forgive you. You're a terrible Christian." All of these daily battles that we face. How does does that play into the the degree to which we're not turning the world upside down? In other words, are we adequately fighting spiritual warfare in the way we should biblically?
1: Well,
2: maybe sometimes, maybe not. Uh, I think in some of what you just described, some of those things are valid emotions. We, we like to take. Let's take a big one, like fear. Mm-hmm. Well, fear is an emotion, and it can be a healthy one, and that the Lord created it and gave it to us like that bear is about to eat you You should run. That's healthy listening to your fear. The way I would approach that is I'm like, Lord, if this is a spirit of fear, would you show us? And then would you show us how to get rid of it? And so help us differentiate between what's, you know, what's our carnal, what's our fleshly self, what's just the valid, you know, emotions that we have. There's things that we just need that need to be further sanctified by the Lord. And then where's this whole, like, what part of me am I wrestling with that are strongholds, principalities, you know, where we not, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the, prince and the powers of this dark world. I mean, I think Paul says in Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, mm-hmm. but spiritual,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and sufficient for tearing down strongholds and, and speculations and arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So if I bump into something that is exalting itself, about who God says in his word, I, I start scratching my head saying, okay, is this, is this something beyond me or this person should we be praying differently? And that's kind of how I approach spiritual warfare.
0: Yeah, well, it, it, and it's something that you learn how to deal with over time more and more, I think, as you mature in Christ, you become a little bit more wise to the enemy's devices, I think. And, and, and spending more time in the Word clearly is a, a big part of it, is being able to put on the armor of God, like Ephesians 6 talks about. Also, going back to the apostles, you know, one of the other apostles who's one of my favorites, and I think most people would say he's one of their favorites, too, is the Apostle Paul. How do you view Paul in terms of his obedience to the Lord, he had a really difficult mission being this missionary to the Gentiles, and he was persecuted. And I mean, like the other disciples, too, Peter included, uh, thrown in jail, you know, shipwrecked, stoned. But he had this unshakable faith in Jesus and just continued to do what Jesus told him to do. Uh, do you look at him as someone to emulate? And if so, what, what parts of Paul's ministry do you find to be, you know, things that you should imitate?
2: I probably I don't I can only you know the book is is big enough as it is so I I cut it short in the middle of really Paul's ministry but the 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 thing I you know the thing I keep coming back to with Paul I mean obviously he's a writer so I have a soft spot in my heart for writers but the thing I I guess the thing I love about Paul is to to come from where he came from which is pulling believers of the way out of their homes and either imprisoning them or killing them to the Damascus road where he encounters the risen Jesus to denying himself and picking up his cross and following Jesus all the way to his death and i and i i love that about him i love his courage i love his you know, I'm pressed down, but not crushed, crushed sticking, stricken, but not destroyed. Right. So I just, I love that about, I love that about his heart. What did that in him? I think the thing that did that in him is the same thing that did it in the disciples. And that's that they saw resurrected Jesus. Right. That, and, that, a, dead, that a dead man is now living, breathing, eating, chewing fish, making a fire, talking to him, laughing with him cuddling with their kids.
0: Yeah, and, and though we don't see Jesus as the apostles did, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. Again, we're back to the importance of trusting yeah. in Christ and believing his word. I mean, that that's so hard. And I know even the disciples fell into that. You know, Thomas, well, show me your scars, Lord. Show me where the nail prints were. <laughs> I, I think maybe that really is the essence of everything that ails us is our unbelief. Even though we are Christians, we do have those same, you know, trepidation that that plague the disciples at times.
2: I, I wrestle with it, you know, I, I, daily. I think that we do. I, and again, I'm you can put me in the front of the line with that. But I, one of my prayers in the last year to kind of as I've walked down this road with the Lord, is, Father. F- number one, would you please forgive my unbelief? I'm sorry. I, I, I love you, and and where I feel like the you know the the father that comes to Jesus, help my unbelief, which I think is a beautiful prayer and Jesus can handle it. So I I just ask him, would you help me with my own unbelief? And where I don't believe you, would you like pour that into me? Because I want that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Charles Martin, the name of the book, They Turn the World Upside Down. Thank you, Charles, for being with us. Thank you. All right. God bless you. Before we go, we just want to remind you about our wonderful campaign with Bible Leak International. This is just such an important thing, and it is sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Did you know how many believers don't have access to the Bible. Ten Christians right now in many places in Africa, nine of them have no Bible at all. And we have a wonderful opportunity to send Bibles to these brothers and sisters in the Lord. $5 sends one Bible and $50 sends 10 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at com. Thanks again for listening today.